For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, March is National Kidney Month, and I'll talk with a Tucson woman whose family is coping with a serious hereditary kidney disease. Film essayist Christy Scheel previews what the 2019 Tucson Cine Mexico Festival has in store for local movie lovers. And find out how travel writer Edie Girolam uncovered a missing piece of her family history in Vienna, Austria, right next door to Sigmund Freud. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Imagine living with a condition that makes sitting in a chair even for half an hour uncomfortable, one that saps your energy and creates chronic pain. It begins by impairing one organ, but eventually comprises the function of many, something that makes exercise, a crucial part of controlling the condition, dangerous due to the possibility of internal ruptures. Polycystic kidney disease is one of the most common life-threatening genetic conditions, and it's likely to strike many different members of a family, regardless of their age or gender. One in seven adults will face a kidney ailment in their lifetimes. March is National Kidney Month, a chance to raise awareness and increase the likelihood of kidney donations that can be used for life-saving transplants. Joining me is Erica Federico, a Tucson native who lives with polycystic kidney disease. We're joined by phone by Pat McReynolds, Major Gifts Officer for the National Kidney Foundation of Arizona. Before we get to Erica's story, Pat begins with some facts. You can have late-stage kidney disease without even knowing it because many of the symptoms are silent. That's why they call it the silent killer. What we do at the Kidney Foundation is we put on screenings, several screenings a year. They're called past the wellness screenings, and we just expanded them outside of Maricopa County, where we tell people within 45 minutes, you know, they give a blood and a urine sample, and we're able to tell them their GFR and their kidney health, which has proved invaluable. In fact, we just put one on this past weekend and identified a woman that was really needing to leave our screening and go immediately to the hospital. So it definitely is something that people need to be talking to their doctor about. But if they do have the opportunity for one of these screenings, they need to take advantage of it. How do you and the Kidney Foundation outline the parameters of the people you're serving? And I know that can be difficult to do since this is a condition that can strike people of all ages and backgrounds. Well, we often say that kidney disease doesn't discriminate by age. Uh, It can happen to you at any time. In fact, we put on a camp just for children, Camp Kidney, every year and have, unfortunately, more and more children needing and wanting to go to camp every year. But just overall, I think it's safe to say that kidney disease is predominantly an adult disease. Currently in Arizona, there are more than 10,000 people on life-saving dialysis. And there are more than 1,900 people waiting for a kidney on a waiting list. And if you just look at the people on organ waiting lists in Arizona, 87% of them are waiting for a kidney. Well, Erica, we heard Patrick talk about Camp Kidney and the opportunity for kids today to grow up learning how to take care of their condition and achieve better wellness. Was there anything like that for you when you were younger? How young were you when the idea that you had PKD entered your life? So I was 21 years old um, when I was diagnosed. Um, That was probably a little later than 
I probably would have liked to be diagnosed. Um, I didn't have any signs until I hit about 20 years old, and I actually felt a lot of back pain, flank pain. So I knew that it, it was hereditary. I knew my father had it, and there would be a 50-50 chance that it would be passed on to, my, to me or my brother. Accepting that you had PKD, what did that mean in terms of impacting your lifestyle? Actually, it did not impact my lifestyle too much at the point that I was actually diagnosed. I was at about 90% kidney function. So with that, my doctors um, just told me to live a normal life, um, not let it affect me mentally, you know, until things got worse. And actually, probably about 50% function is when I started listening a little bit more closely to my body, making sure I was exercising daily, eating properly, um, taking um, the proper measures. Does having a condition like PKD automatically mean dialysis for people? Eventually, yes. I'm about um, two months away from that, unfortunately. Yeah, that would be really hard to take. The way to cure yourself is obviously to have someone donate a kidney. But if you have several people in your family in need of that, you know, your chances of finding a match and finding someone who could be a living kidney donor go down. And I'm sure that's what Erica and many people in the state of Arizona are facing right now. What are the most important factors in finding a match, Patrick? Well, you know, there are a lot of ways to do it now that increase your odds. And this is one point that I wanted to make sure that we stress. We have a program called the Irma Bombeck Project, irmabombeckproject.org, that talks all about what it means to be a living kidney donor, how you can be a living kidney donor, even if you don't know someone who needs a kidney, or even if you don't match the person that you know does need a kidney, you can find a person who matches for you and help that person you're paired with move higher up on the list. So that is something that would help Erica, would help her family members, would help a lot of people in Arizona. If they go to the website and take a look, you can give them every, you can answer any question you might have. But the main thing that I want to stress is that if you donate one of your kidneys, it really doesn't impact your life much at all. And you can live a completely normal and healthy life and also be a hero to someone that you help save. How many people in your family are living with polycystic kidney disease? So there were a total of six affected, including me. My grandmother, she passed away when she was about 67 years old. I believe it was 1995 when she passed. And, you know, back then there just, there wasn't a lot of research with this particular disease. So a lot of the doctors didn't know how to treat this particular disease. Now they've come a long way and there's definitely medication out there that can suppress the disease for maybe a short term, maybe a long term. It just all depends where you're, where you're at um, with your GFR. But, and you'll uh, have to tell our listeners, what is GFR? <laughs> it's actually your kidney function. It's actually your EGFR. I'm, I should state it correctly. But um, it's something that I look at. Um, every time I get my blood work done. And it's an indicator of where you're at as far as your function. So going back to my family, six people, um, my grandmother, all of her children, including my father, who passed it on to myself. I have 
an aunt who passed away and I have an uncle who had a transplant, my father who had a transplant, and my aunt who's currently back on the list. So she was transplanted. Um, she did reject and now she's back on the list. How has receiving that kidney transplant changed the lives of your father and uncle? Greatly. I mean, it's a second opportunity at life. And I know that my father preaches um, to me, you know, once you get that second opportunity, don't waste it. Take care of it. Not a lot of people get the opportunity. So, you know, we all feel lucky that um, there are giving people out there willing to sacrifice their own life for yours. And Erica, did your father immediately feel better when he woke up for the surgery? He did. So my father received a cadaver kidney, which is um, someone. Yeah. You, you know, check deceased, that box on your right, driver's license. Deceased kidney. Um, it did take him probably 24 hours for the kidney to actually adapt to his system. But once it in a sense, woke up um, with his, you know, his body immediately started feeling it. It was pretty amazing is what he said, just how he felt compared to his 8% function. Erica, do you have hopes that a donor will enter your life and that a transplant might change things? Absolutely. I have faith. And I know that someone out there is going to match with me. There's a lot that goes into it just not the the blood type, um, but I am an O positive, so that can be a little bit more um, restrictive as far as who can donate to me. It's a rarer blood type. It is. It is. So I am hopeful. I do have a few family members that have tested recently. I hope that someone, you know, will see the value in giving someone else life. Well, Patrick, in closing, are there any events or special ways that people can contribute to the cause during March? Well, you can contribute to the National Kidney Foundation of Arizona anytime you like uh, by going to nkfaz.org. But we also have a walk coming up in April where we're actually going to go to Cardinal Stadium and thousands of people will be walking the concourse in support of family members, uh, in support of the, the foundation, I'm sure Erica will be there with her family. Erica is doing exactly what she should be doing. She's talking about it. She's making sure that people in her life know what she's going through because it only takes one. And so many people really want to help. They just need to know that their help is needed. And I would just like to add um, anyone who's willing to test, not just for myself, but for, for anyone out there, you know, you are giving the gift of life. And it's so precious, and I don't think a lot of people realize it until it's too late. I talked with Erica Federico, and we were joined on the telephone by Pat McReynolds, the major gifts officer for the National Kidney Foundation of Arizona, headquartered in Phoenix. You can find links on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. It's no coincidence that Mexican directors have taken home five of the last six Best Directing Oscars at the Academy Awards. 
the country has been in a film renaissance for more than a decade. And each year, local audiences have a unique chance to view some of the best examples at Tucson Cine Mexico, the longest-running festival of contemporary Mexican film in the United States, presented by the Hansen Film Institute. This year's festival runs from March 27th to the 31st, with screenings and public discussions held at four locations across the city. Admission to all of these events is free, but reservations are recommended. Now, film essayist Christy Scheel gives us an overview of some of the standout selections. I had the privilege of seeing three of the scheduled films ahead of time, all of them addressing the subject of class, an urgent issue in the stratified social order of Mexico, yet also relevant worldwide. Las Niñas Bien, or The Good Girls, is a sly and chilling portrait of upper-class Mexican society, in the 1980s in this case, but essentially the same now. Sofia, played by Ilse Salas, is the wife of a prominent businessman and the glamorous queen bee of her social circle. She spends her time buying clothes, playing tennis, and gossiping with her friends, wealthy wives who are as vain and indolent as she is. Then comes the 1982 Mexican debt crisis, in which the devaluation of the peso fails to prevent the country defaulting on its debt. Sophia's husband is saddled with a failing company, and the effects are felt gradually, the first clue being when her charge card fails to go through in a department store purchase. She desperately tries to maintain her chic image in the midst of this economic collapse. The film is written and directed by Alejandro Marquez Abela, and it's based on stories from the 1980s by Guadalupe Loeza. The marvel here is that we don't despise the lead character, Sophia. The wonderful Ilse Silas lets us see in her eyes and mannerisms Sophia's dawning awareness that her life is empty and meaningless. She loses herself in pathetic fantasies about the popular singer Julio Iglesias, while disguising her fear with dismissive attitudes toward lower-class Mexicans. The Good Girls is subtle, beautifully shot, and manages both to cleverly satirize and to show compassion towards the rich who are trapped in their own delusions. The international triumph of Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, with its central figure of a beloved housekeeper and nanny, was bound to inspire some kind of corrective. And right on cue, we have Guidani's Naval, written and directed by Javi Sala. We first meet 12-year-old Guidani, played by Sotera Cruz, in her village in Oaxaca, as she and her brother prepare for them both to go to Mexico City to earn their living as servants in a wealthy household. Their employers are nice enough, but Guidani feels lost and lonely away from home. Then the paternalistic attitudes start to add up. The father tells them to stop talking in their native Indian language and to speak only in Spanish. He says that Guidani must get instruction from a tutor, and he even decides that Guidani's mother must get a different hairstyle. The girl doesn't like any of this, and her mother tends to be strict and severe, wanting to stay there and make money above all else. When Guidani meets a spirited girl in the neighborhood, her desire to have fun with a friend, like any 12-year-old, leads to trouble. So Tara Cruz is impressive in the main role. The contrast between her sullen and stoic demeanor as a servant and her joy when having fun with her friend makes her seem almost like two different actresses. Behind the well-developed drama of the film is the injustice of a system in which the poor must abandon their own local and familial ties in order to work for the wealthy. The simplest and yet most rigorously stylized of the three films I watched is La Camarista, or The Chambermaid, directed by Lila Aviles. Once again, we have the plight of the servant class, this time that of Eva, 
a hotel worker played by Gabriella Cartol. Rarely will you see a film that so closely and thoroughly examines the workplace and its routines. In fact, the picture never leaves the hotel, a luxury spot in Mexico City, although we do see Ava making phone calls to her young son and the woman friend who babysits him. Otherwise, her private life is off screen. She performs the repetitive cleaning tasks while navigating and trading assignments with bosses and coworkers and attending an on-site class to help her get a GED. At one point, she is persuaded to help a wealthy guest by watching her baby while the guest showers and dresses. The attempts by this talkative woman to be friendly with the chambermaid are amusing, but also sad and uncomfortable. And there's a window washer that makes mute advances to Ava while she cleans. He doesn't seem discouraged when she shuts the curtains on him. In order to convey the experience of a hotel maid, one needs to take the patient, austere, and impersonal approach that the director takes here. La Camarista shows us the humanity of its main character by sticking closely and relentlessly to the truth of her situation. This year's festival promises to be a great one. For show dates, times, and locations, go to TucsonCineMexico.org. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Scheel. Here is Tucson-based travel writer Edie Girolam reading an excerpt from her blog called Freud's Butcher. Some people are born genealogists, some achieve genealogy, and some have genealogy thrust upon them. I fall into the third category. For a long time, I avoided my family's history, practicing only what I'll call defensive genealogy. Ours was not a happy family story. Both my parents fled Nazi-occupied Vienna in 1939, though not together. They met in Brooklyn's Brighton Beach in an English-language class for refugees. My mother liked to say that my father fell in love with her for a Viennese accent. She sounded like home to him. Unfortunately, my parents had much more in common than their birth city. The Nazis confiscated most of the family's money and possessions. My grandparents on both sides could only afford boat passage for one person per family. They used it to send the able-bodied young adults to America to earn enough to bring the rest of the family over. In my mother's case, her parents. In my father's, his mother, sister, and brother. They managed to scrape together the money by 1941, only to find that the European borders had just closed. No more Jews would be allowed out. None of the relatives they worked to save survived the war. Given the loss of everything she once knew, all the people she was closest to, it's not surprising that my mother rarely talked about the past. I didn't want to push her, not least because I didn't want to conjure up all those horrific images of the Holocaust. Because we never met any close family members in America or even heard about them, my sister and I assumed that most relatives on both sides had been killed in concentration camps. When my mother did talk about Vienna, it was generally with great and understandable bitterness. But there was one detail from happier times she was fond of recalling that one of her uncles had been Sigmund Freud's butcher. I didn't find that anecdote particularly interesting when I was a child, but when I got older, it turned out to be quite useful. When people I met for the first time would ask about my background and I told them both parents were from Vienna, they would talk rhapsodically about Strauss waltzes and Mozart and Schoenbrunn, about how beautiful the city is. It wouldn't have been very polite to tell them what I really thought of Vienna. 
My great uncle sold me to Sigmund Freud was an amusing tidbit I could offer up when asked about my heritage, a way to divert the conversation, which is what I mean by defensive genealogy, the strategic deployment of one family story to keep the rest at bay. That all changed in late 2011, when one of the new acquaintances I told the butcher shop story to did something that wasn't an option for much of my life and that I never thought to do later on. He Googled it. Surprise! He found a photograph of a butcher shop on the website of Vienna Sigmund Freud Museum with a large, unfamiliar name over its door. Sigmund Cornmill. Hearing a family story is one thing. Having it verified, and especially learning that the butcher shop in question occupied the same building as Freud, the famous 19 Bergasse, put an entirely new spin on the information. It piqued my interest. A great deal has been written about Freud's Vienna, but I assumed that the mysterious Sigmund Cornmill bore little resemblance to the Jews in books like Woman in Gold, prosperous Jews who frequented salons and rubbed shoulders with artists like Klimt. This family member was a tradesman, working in a very unglamorous profession. What, I wondered, was his life like? His life, not his death. I vowed to find out more. According to one novelized account, Martha Freud, wife of Sigmund Freud for 53 years, was not happy that the butcher shop next door to her husband's office had a sign out front bearing the name of the proprietor, Sigmund Cornmail. That's just one of the many unexpected details that Edie Girolam uncovered while tracing her family history. I asked her if this journey began with a book in mind or if her reasons were more personal. It was for my own satisfaction. Um, since I'm a writer, that's what I do, so it made sense that I would write something, and it turned out to be a blog. That turned out to be the most invaluable research tool because as soon as I started putting information on the Internet, all kinds of people turned up that I didn't know existed, members of my family. Did the Cornmails live at that address? Did they live above the shop? No. They actually, as it transpired lived in a building right across the street, number 18 Bergasse, but I actually didn't find that out until just two weeks ago. People keep turning up. Information keeps turning up. Um, in this case, I got a manuscript that I wasn't expecting ever to see, an unpublished manuscript. So um, I'm not sure who owned number 19 where Freud lived, but uh, there was a book in 2003 called Freud's Neighbors, and that's one of the ways that I found out about all this information about my great uncle was was this book, and it detailed all the neighbors and what happened to them. Um, none of it was very nice because most of the building was Jewish. So, um, but basically, they were all dispossessed at, at some point, including, of course, Freud, who left in 1938 in May. Have you come away with any information about their personalities? Have you learned anything about who they were as people? The Jewish neighborhood was the second district. Um, this was the ninth district, the Alsergrind, and it was considered, um, you know, a mixed neighborhood. There were a lot of different people. There was a tobacconist, a shoemaker, um, a butcher shop, um, a lot of 
different restaurants. But the other thing is it was very near the university. And Freud was a well-known figure walking down the street to, to his job at the university. And of course, there were all these famous people who came through his offices and who probably stopped in the butcher shop. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, a lot of it is speculation. But one of the things that I speculated about, because really, people don't talk that much about Freud's domestic life. I, I went through all the major Freud biographies to find out, to get clues. And Freud was very adamant about his religion or lack thereof. He considered himself culturally Jewish, but not only didn't he eat kosher, but he thought it was bad for you. He wrote a letter to Martha Freud um, who complained that she was feeling ill, and they had a very long um, engagement, so there were a lot of letters between them. And at one point when she wrote that she was not feeling well, he said, well, don't eat kosher food. And her parents uh, were very religious. Her grandfather was the chief rabbi of Hamburg. So despite being adamant, um, my great uncle's butcher shop was not not the one in the building was in kosher, but two doors down, he had a kosher butcher shop. And that one, um, even though there's no evidence, I suspect that Martha Freud, the granddaughter of a grand rabbi, might have just tucked it and shopped at that store without telling Sigmund that he was eating kosher food. <laughs> That's just a theory. With the rise of fascism across Europe, how did the Jews in Vienna fare? Was there persecution and segregation applied against Jewish people at that time? You know, it happened so suddenly that people didn't believe it. I mean, people read reports from Germany, and those sounded terrible, but they never thought that it could happen to them. Suddenly, in March 1938, there was the Anschluss, you know, the takeover of Austria by Germany, and there was a grand parade with the Nazis marching down the street and Jewish shops being closed. I mean, it, it happened really very suddenly. They arrived in March. Freud left in May. The Jews... Property was being taken from them very methodically. There were that's one of the kind of scary things, um, the record keeping. So you knew exactly how much everybody had. They had to declare their possessions, and most of the possessions were taken away in taxes, um, or you know, just some ridiculous Aryans are the only ones allowed to own property. So um, it was very fast, and it was very methodical at the same time. What was the next step for the Cornmail family? Eight brothers and sisters. So um, they all have different stories, and that's what my talk is going to be about, what happened to every single one of them. They were basically shunted into smaller and smaller apartments, um, or they left when those who were shunted into smaller and smaller apartments and couldn't escape were eventually sent off to be killed in different places. When did you go to Vienna? Well, I started going to Vienna several times, and that culminated in the talk that I gave last October. Once I started learning about the family business and once I realized that I really wanted to focus on the lives of these people and not their deaths, so everybody in my extended family, um, I sent emails out and told them I was going to be doing this talk. And to my surprise, people from around the world told me they were going to show up. So I had people from Vienna, of course, that I had never met before 
but also from New York, three relatives from New York, one from London, uh, one from Amsterdam, and several from Israel. So that was quite a surprise. So you found yourself in the largest family gathering you've ever experienced. That's correct. I really just avoided thinking about my family because I was taking the cue from my parents um, and it didn't seem very happy. Well, you know, so, some of it was very unhappy and that's why it took so long to, to come to this conclusion. I, I stopped blogging for several years on and off um, because it was too painful to find out what happened to a lot of them. But on the other hand, I discovered this extended family that I never knew I had, and it was it was quite amazing. And it was a much happier experience than I had anticipated it was going to be. Edie Girolam presents a talk called Freud's Butcher, A Jewish Roots Journey to Vienna, on Sunday, March 24th at 1 p.m. at the Tucson JCC on East River Road. She'll also teach a five-week afternoon course on genealogy called Writing Your Family History, an Introduction, starting Wednesday, March 27th. You can find a complete schedule and registration information for both events at tucsonjcc.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.